The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. So I was going through the notes this morning. I was reminded of a line that we will sing in the third stanza of When I Survey the Wonders Cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? As uh, Isaac Watts penned these words, he is saying what John is saying and what we will study later on, and that is that there's no love anywhere in human history that even comes close to the love that is modeled for us at the cross. That that is the example. As John said in 1 John 3.16, it is by this that we know what love is. We don't know love because of uh, any experience that we've had. We don't know love because of any feelings or emotions that we've had. We don't know love because of anything within human experience. But if we want to know what love is, what real love is, you have to start at the cross. And that is one of the reasons, among many, I think, that the Lord instituted the Lord's table, is that it focuses us on historical reality to put our attention off of the day-to-day events and cares of life and to remember at a regular basis that everything we are and everything that we have is the result of what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. It's all grace. It has nothing to do with any merit on our part. It doesn't have anything to do with who we are or what we've done, but it has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. Paul warned the Corinthians and admonished them that one of the reasons that there were many that were going through divine discipline, he said many among you are weak and sickly, some have died, was because of their abuse at the Lord's table. They were coming to the Lord's table out of fellowship and in carnality. And so Paul said, for this reason, it's important to examine yourselves to make sure you're prepared for the Lord's table. This means that we need to make sure that uh, our attitude is correct, but above all, that we have uh, confessed our sins, used 1 John 1, 9. And so we always begin the Lord's table with a few moments of silent prayer. The Lord's table is not restricted in any way to members of this church, but to anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is your opportunity to spend some time thinking about all that Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer, during which time uh, the deacons will come forward to serve the Lord's table And then I'm going to ask Dave Tongren if he would please uh, return thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. The night before he went to the cross, our Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. We usually refer to it as the Last Supper. 
It was during that Passover meal that Jesus took two elements that were part of the Passover meal and invested them with new meaning. He took the bread, which was unleavened. It was unleavened because leaven represents sin. And he said, this bread represents my body. His body was sinless. He was sinless. He was impeccable. He said, this bread is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Bryce if he would please return thanks for the cup. Jesus then took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So I'll stand together and we'll sing hymn number 258, 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that it is in the light of your word that we see light, and it is only by studying your word that we understand things as they are as you have created them. And Father, as we continue our study in First John, we pray that you would help us to understand the importance of love. It's how it is produced in the spiritual life through the Holy Spirit and how this relates to spiritual growth, maturity. And Father, we pray that you, we would be, you would be glorified in this study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Now, we have been studying in 1 John 4 about love, love as it is manifested, demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross. It is this love that Jesus spoke of in John 13, 34, and 35 when he said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, as John looks at love and as we have studied love in the past, Love is used almost as a code word 
for spiritual maturity itself. As we look through John's epistle here, we have seen that that John makes a point that if you know God, you're going to keep his commandments. If you love God, you keep his commandments. To know God, you have to study the word. You have to understand what is revealed in the scriptures. And when you tie all of this together, it becomes obvious that though you can be saved, justified, redeemed, the child of God, uh, growing, maturing in the spiritual life, and still not know God. As John uses that phrase, know God, he has in mind someone who has reached a certain level of maturity in his understanding of who and what God is, his plan, and in the application of his word. Therefore, when you equate the concept of knowing God, as John uses it, with loving God and loving one another, it becomes clear that love then is a code word for spiritual maturity, somebody who has reached spiritual adulthood. Now, the way that we have dealt with this is graphically to help us understand how these things fit together. We're related to the ten stress busters or spiritual skills that we have been studying. The three stages in the spiritual life that John addresses in First John chapter 2, spiritual childhood, uh, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adulthood. In spiritual childhood, we begin to learn and understand and apply the basic skills that are necessary to go anywhere in the spiritual life. This is like elementary school. This is like going in the military and going through basic training. This is like going into a uh, a new job or new career to new company and going through two or three weeks of orientation or basic training in your particular field so that you can um, function. These are just fundamental skills that every believer has to have. Uh, first of all, confession is sin, and we have to confess our sins so that we can recover when we do sin, so that we can recover fellowship, so that we can recover the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and uh, begin to walk by means of the Holy Spirit again. Furthermore, then third, we have to master the faith rest drill, which is simply learning to respond to life situations by claiming promises. Whatever life situations might be, we have to learn to categorize them and have some promises that relate to those particular situations. Faith rest drill in its most basic form is simply mixing our faith with the promises of God. In order to mix our faith with the promises of God, that presupposes that we know the promises of God. And that means that we should be memorizing Scripture. It's important to memorize Scripture. Uh, the psalmist said um, that he hides. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So we should be memorizing Scripture. You should work at that around the, uh, if you have a family, around the breakfast table, around the dinner table. Uh, you can work that with your, your children from the time they, they first uh, come of an age when they can put sentences together, start teaching them uh, Scripture verses. We have some uh, plans in mind that um, uh, Ernie Dillon, our, our prep school superintendent, has come up with in relationship to uh encouraging the kids across the board to memorize Scripture, and that is something that is going to uh, uh, impact family life because that's something that the whole family can do. Parents can help the kids learn and memorize those Scriptures, and in turn, that's going to 
for some of you to memorize some scripture perhaps you have not memorized before. You can't use a faith rest drill if you don't know the Word of God and if you do not have these promises to claim. It is the Word of God that is alive and powerful. So we have the faith rest drill. Once we memorize Scripture, once we have Scriptures and promises to claim, then we move to the second and third stage of the faith rest drill, which is developing doctrinal rationales, that is, being able to look at a situation and realize that this is a problem, but God is greater than my problem, therefore God has a solution to the problem. That's simply a doctrinal rationale. And then we reach certain doctrinal conclusions that we apply uh, to those situations. That's the faith rest drill. Then we get to the fourth spiritual skill, which is grace orientation. We are to grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 3.18. So grace orientation and doctrinal orientation are the next two spiritual skills. Those are fundamental. One, it, it, it's amazing how long it takes some people to get these things into place, and that's simply because they don't want to make doctrine a priority in their life. But we have to understand that grace is God's policy, and grace is what governs our life. You're never going to get to a point where you can apply the principles that John is talking about in terms of loving other believers if you don't understand grace, because grace means that our that God's actions toward us are not dependent on who we are or what we have done. No matter how bad you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how obnoxious you are, no matter how wonderful you are, God always treats you the same because it's not based on who you are at any given point in time. It's based on the absolute of God's character. In the same way, that is how we should treat other people. We should treat them on the basis of who and what God is, and that stability provides stability in relationships. And if we understand grace, then that means that we deal with our children, our parents, our friends, our employees, our employers on the basis of grace, not on the basis of their personality, not on the basis of their strengths or weaknesses, not based on how much we like them or care for them individually or how little we may like them or care for them individually. So if you don't understand grace, you can't ever understand the love of God that we are to imitate in our life and that God the Holy Spirit is going to produce in our life. And then doctrine or orientation builds in us an understanding of everything that God has done for us, beginning with positional truth, positional realities, and then developing from there. All of these are basic foundational building blocks that you and I need to be practicing on a day-to-day basis. Every decision, every situation calls into play one or another of these basic building blocks. And it's just like a person who is involved in sports, a person who's involved in music, playing an instrument, a person involved in dance, is those skills, those basic fundamental movements, whether they're physical movements or whether they are movements related to uh, uh, music, something of that nature, vocal, vocalist, exercise, practice certain skills every day. You do it over and over and over again. You're bored till you're tired until you're doing it in your sleep without thinking about it. That's how anyone becomes good and, ex- and is able to excel at any skill. And as we do that, what we will, what will happen is growth will take place. We don't make growth happen. We can't say today I'm going to be more mature as a believer. 
God the Holy Spirit produces it as a result of the fact that we are doing these things. For doctrinal orientation, that means we learn to make doctrine a priority, and we show up at Bible class whenever we can, and we start listening to tapes and getting tapes and listening to them when we can and uh, in the car and everywhere we go so that we're constantly reminded of what God has provided, constantly learning what the Word of God says about God's plan and policies. We come to spiritual adolescence. We slowly grasp the reality that the decisions we make today determine who and what we will be in eternity, not in terms of our eternal destiny in relationship to heaven or hell, but in relationship to our inheritance, Romans 8:16 to 17. Once we get that personal sense of our eternal destiny, we start making decisions not on the basis of how it's going to affect things today or tomorrow or next week or next year, but in terms of eternity. Once we get these things in place to where they are a solid part of our thinking, it is only then that we're going to really see developments in the arena of love. Now that we understand God's grace and understand more and more of what God has done for us, we can love him more and more. You can't love someone you don't know. Now, we know God a certain amount when we're saved, and, and there's a measure of love, and there's a measure of, of um, uh uh, affection for God, but that's not what the scriptures are really talking about. We are responding to the fact that now we're saved. But it, it often in immaturity it has more to do with emotion and more to do with exhilaration, more to do with uh, just glad we escaped the fires of hell than anything else. But as we develop an understanding of God's plan and purposes, then we know God in all of his breadth and depth, and we begin to love him in more mature ways. Then, because we understand what love is and our love for God, that motivates us in impersonal love for all mankind. And the reason that we call it impersonal love is because this emphasizes the fact that you don't have to have personal knowledge or a personal relationship with the other person, with the other believer. We are to love one another. I may not know someone at all. They may be someone at a ticket counter. They may be a, ca- a cashier at a grocery store. Maybe somebody driving down the highway. Maybe just, if you're in business, it may be a client. It may be a supervisor. It may be uh, someone you, you have to do business with and you don't know them at all. But nevertheless, you treat them a certain way and you respond to them a certain way based upon the example of Christ on the cross. And then the third element in love is occupation with Christ, that our focus is on Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2.2. And this is what I've called the love triplex. These three elements together make up the concept of love in the Christian life. The result of all this is that we share the happiness of God, and we have a measure of happiness that's not emotional, but is based on a stability and tranquility and contentment in life because of our mental attitude and the divine viewpoint that dominates our soul. All of this is is why we are studying love. Love is in that upper block. It is that key element that is being developed in us as spiritual adults. Now, John emphasizes the radical importance of love in this epistle. But the love he emphasizes is a far cry from the kind of love that is usually taught and extolled from the pulpits of most churches and the kind of love you hear people talk about and say, well, I don't understand how so-and-so could say that or do that. That's not very loving. 
the love that this is talking about is not the kind of love you find in a church where people are told to stand up, turn around, tell somebody you love them. It's not having warm feelings of affection toward other believers, because frankly, we can't have those kinds of feelings toward that many people. It's not emotion. Emotions change. Emotions are fluid. They are up one day, down the next. They are uh, they respond to numerous situations in life, and so it is not something that's based on emotion. They vacillate too much. Love that is explained in 1 John is not a love that's expressed in superficial or sentimental ways. It's a love that is not based on human experience, but is based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we have to go to the cross to understand it. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this that he laid down his life as a substitute for us. He died for us. He gave his life as a substitute for us and paid the penalty for us, and that implies an obligation that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. First John 4, 9, the passage we're studying, we covered last time, by this the love of God was revealed in us, or manifested in us, from the Greek verb phanerao, was manifested in us that God has sent his unique son into the world so that we might live through him. How do you know God's love? By the incarnation, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God. In other words, it's not human initiation that begins love. God doesn't love us because we loved him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And see, John twice mentions propitiation. He mentions he mentions propitiation because in propitiation, I think, the greatest problem of all the problems that are outlined for salvation, the problem is the character of God, not just the problem of the fact that man is born spiritually dead. That's solved through regeneration. Not just the fact that man is is born enslaved to sin. That's solved by uh, redemption because Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and the penalty is spiritual death. It's not just the fact that man is at enmity to God, and that's solved by reconciliation, but it is the fact that God's very character is a problem because God is perfect righteousness and cannot have fellowship with creatures that have less than perfect righteousness. It's not the matter that the that many unbelievers will uh, come up with, that how can a loving God send his creatures to hell? The problem is how can a righteous God let anyone into heaven that's less than perfect? And so God had to solve that problem, and so the greatest problem was providing a salvation that would enable God to have fellowship with a sinner. So God devised a perfect plan whereby at salvation, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, when you trust Christ as your Savior, God imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looks at that payment of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he is satisfied by his death because Christ's righteousness is satisfied by the death penalty paid by Christ. His righteousness can be imputed to us. So propitiation stands for the highest element of Christ's work on the cross and the solution to the greatest problem that we face. Of course, the conclusion is that if God solved the greatest problem that we will ever face at the cross, 
then God can solve every other problem. Now, another point that I want to emphasize here is notice that the Bible doesn't start talking about love in just abstract terms. It doesn't just start talking about love. And, for example, if you were to go to a psychology or human relations class in, at the local university and the professor was going to start talking about love, he might start by going to a dictionary, Webster's Dictionary or the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, and looking at a definition of love there. He might uh, look at a poll where numerous people explained what they thought love was, and he might spend time talking about it in this sort of abstract, disconnected manner. But the Bible never talks about love, never talks about most categories in that kind of an abstract manner that's just disconnected from life. When you look at at, uh, the character of God, for example, you look at the issue of love, The Bible starts with something that happens in human history, something that we can look at, something that man can appreciate, something that man can can understand. We have a visual, concrete representation of what love is, and that love is at the cross. That is how you teach. That is how you understand divine viewpoint, and that is an important lesson for those of you who teach your children at home, those of you who teach uh, in the prep school, as you don't start off talking about concepts like God's righteousness, God's justice, God's omnipotence or omniscience in just sort of an abstract way with some definition. Always ground it in a situation, a text, an episode in Scripture so that the kids and, and even adults can get an, a handle on it in a space-time illustration. That's how God revealed that to uh, the human race. If you go through the Scriptures, God reveals his character through things that he does concretely in human history. And so it's important that when you teach these concepts, don't just teach them in some sort of abstract manner, but go to situations in the Bible uh, where God specifically illustrates these aspects of his character. Now, when we come to understand a passage like First uh, John 4, 9 and following, we have to realize that the framework for this is Jesus' statement back in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. There he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. See, he doesn't say you love one another in just sort of an abstract way, but he says, as I have loved you. He gives a, he's giving a concrete example as to exactly what this love is and what it should look like. That you should also love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So we learn from this that the love that Jesus commands is a love that is has an objective model. It is not subjective. It's not based on personal feelings of attraction and sentiment, but it is based on what Christ did on the cross. This means that this kind of love is not the kind of love that can be produced by an unbeliever. It can't be produced by somebody who uh, just generates it of their own. In fact, this is not the kind, therefore we know that this is not the kind of love that you normally associate with uh, human relationships. This is a distinct category of love. It's not emotion. It's not sentimentality. It's not feeling. It's not some superficial demonstration of friendliness, but it's something that is based on integrity and something that is based on character. And without integrity or character, there can't be any uh, real development. Now, this is always a challenge to many 
uh, believers who get caught up in simple uh, abstract doctrinal thought because they think that Christianity is just summarized by what you know. The problem is you can't get to love without knowledge, but knowledge without love is meaningless. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge, and there he uses the word gnosis, academic knowledge, makes arrogant, but love edifies. You always saw examples of that in a Bible college or any seminary. You have so many young men whose knowledge of the word just far outstrips their application that it is very typical to see uh, arrogance take over because of the vast amount of academic knowledge. Now, all of this is just by way of introduction to help us understand the principles of 1 John 4, 9 through 12. The love of God was manifested or revealed to us. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And then in verse 10, we're told that this is instantiated through uh, the doctrine of propitiation. Now, in propitiation, the word that is used here in the Greek is the word hilasterion. And uh, hilasterion refers back to the concept of the mercy seat in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the focus of worship for the Jew in the temple and earlier in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box, and in that box there were three articles. There was there were the Ten Commandments. There was uh, Aaron's uh, rod that had budded, and uh, there, then there was uh, uh, some manna. And each of these represented an episode of sin in the life of the nation. On top of that box there was placed a gold lid. This is the ark itself and the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, on each mercy seat, you had, I'm not an artist, you had two cherubs. And these cherubs represent the perfect righteousness and justice of God, and they are looking down on the mercy seat. And the high priest would come in and place the blood from the sacrifice on the mercy seat each year on the year of atonement. And as they looked down, the sins were covered by the blood. Actually, the Hebrew word that is used here is kafar for atonement, and it has been uh, sort of a standard understanding of this meaning for many years to be cover. However, it is realized now more and more through study of various languages that the basic meaning is closer to that of cleansing or purification. And this is a picture of the fact that at salvation, we are cleansed and purified from sins. While it is true that the, the blood of Christ or the death of Christ covers our sins, it, it, what it effectively does is to purify us legally. Now, that is caused because Jesus Christ died on the cross. He suffered an immeasurable, unimaginable amount on the cross as our sins were poured out upon him. We cannot uh, even come close to imagining the pain. Whatever pain you've ever experienced in life, whatever misery you've ever experienced in life, if you multiply that by a factor of about a billion, you might come close to what the perfect second person of the Trinity experienced when the sins of all the sins of mankind were imputed to him on the cross. When he died on the cross, 
the righteousness and justice of God were satisfied. As in the illustration with the Ark of the Covenant, when the righteousness and justice of God looked down on the, on the blood, which is offered as purification for sin, the righteousness and justice of God are then satisfied. So that now the righteousness of God, now that the righteousness of God is satisfied and can approve man because he possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ, the justice of God is now free to bless him. So in this we see various characteristics of divine impersonal love, which we have gone over before, and we need to review again, because as I run into it, it seems to me that I could probably teach the same material on impersonal love six times a week for the next six years, and half of you still wouldn't have a clue. That's not because you're dense. That's not because you're stupid. Maybe for some of you because you're a bit rebellious. But I think it's because most of us have such a difficult time with the whole concept of biblical love and the whole concept of the unselfishness that's required here and the whole concept of the fact that it doesn't have anything to do with the other person's behavior. We are so prone to base our reactions our behavior on how other people are, their personality, how likable they are, how obnoxious they are, how uh, disreputable they are, whatever it may be, when, especially when it comes to somebody who, who threatens our very, may, may, or let me put it this way, has the potential of threatening us, we cannot understand what it means to, to love somebody. There's another example of love, and I was thinking about this week because I'm leaving after church this morning to fly down to Fort Worth, and the next two mornings I am uh, pr- presenting a couple of papers at the Conservative Theological Society meeting, and there's a tendency to, uh, in these papers, especially for me and my sin nature, to be a little bit uh, pugilistic, pugnacious, bellicose, as I am dealing with some things that just really irritate me. And as I'm thinking about it, I was thinking the other day that it's so typical of some Christians that when they hear somebody uh, offer any sort of a biblically-based critique of doctrine, they'll say, well, that's not very loving. Let's put it this way. Is it an act of love to slap the hand of your kid, or is it an act of love to let him go ahead and stick it on a hot burner on the stove? And the problem that we face in Christianity today, or two of the problems that I'm facing, that I'm dealing with in terms of the charismatic movement, is that we recognize that there are, I've outlined or I've identified at least six different approaches to the spiritual life. But they're not the same. I think three or four of them are close enough to where, uh, they, they, they're all based on some form of morality, so it really doesn't matter, but, Two or three of them are radically different. You have a ritualistic view of spiritual life. You have uh, a view of the spiritual life we hold based on the filling of the Holy Spirit. You have another more mystical kind of uh, otherworldly view. Just, just, just have faith. You know that ends up in some sort of empty mysticism. Uh, eventually, if you push it far enough. And is it really right, though, as a pastor or as a, as someone who has studied the Word? to let people think that these things don't really matter, that this is just some sort of matter of, of uh, theological disagreement and it belongs in the seminary. 
It doesn't. I mean, if you are a Pentecostal or charismatic, you have a certain view of the spiritual life that is 180 degrees opposite of what I think the Bible is teaching. Now, I may be right and they may be wrong. They may be right and I may be wrong. But let's not sit back and act as if it doesn't matter. It matters seriously because if they are wrong, then it's not a matter of people ending up in the lake of fire. It's a matter of people losing rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a matter of people having shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So is it an act of love to just sit back and act like these things don't really matter? I don't think so. See, we have this backwards view of love because we want to base love on some pseudo standard of what gentleness and kindness is all about. Jesus took the, you know, it's, it's interesting when Jesus was dealing with the, the, the drunks and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, people who understood their need for grace, he always dealt with them in a certain way. And there you, can, you can see elements that we normally associate with love in terms of, of kindness and gentleness and, and a non-judgmental attitude. But then when he's dealing with the Pharisees and he's dealing with those who are, are legalistic and have a completely false system, what's he doing? He is... Uh, antagonistic and challenging in his approach to them and the questions that he asks. He physically picks them up and throws them bodily out of the temple. That wasn't one or two people, folks. If you look at the structure of Solomon's portico in the uh, temple, in Herod's temple, and you realize that that portico was probably 50 or 60 feet long, and there were they had enough tables set up there at the time of the Passover to handle the two or three hundred thousand visitors who were coming into Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, had to exchange their money for local coinage, and then had to exchange that local coinage for a, a dove or a pigeon for, or whatever for the sacrifice, and you realize that there weren't just a half a dozen money changers there and a couple of card tables set up or TV trays. I mean, these were heavy oak type or mahogany or whatever the wood was, uh, tables. The, there were 20, 30, maybe 60 or 70, uh, men there who were acting as the money changers and Jesus ran them all off. That was an act of love. See, we have to be able to factor all of those kinds of elements into our definition of love. And that's why as a parent, if you are not disciplining your children, if you haven't thought through a biblically-based framework, including corporal punishment, you're not loving your children. You're not teaching them authority orientation. When they grow up, they're not going to understand things. Now, anything can be taken off. You can you can take corporal punishment. You can do it in a mean manner. You can do it in an abusive manner, and that's wrong. That's not love either. But the Bible clearly makes the point that if um, the rod of that that uh, uh, rebelliousness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction drives it far from it. And that's an idiom for corporal punishment. And if you're not doing that, then then you're going to be a failure as a parent, and you're not loving your kids. You're operating on some pseudo-human viewpoint concept of love. So love is something that is is rigorous. It was an act of love for Jesus Christ to go to the cross, for the God the Father to send his Son to go to the cross and endure unimaginable misery and horror on our behalf. That's what love is. And love is not always uh, 
warm, fuzzy feelings, and that is too often how our culture has defined it. So we've outlined in the past, and I just want to review them in closing, eight characteristics of love. First of all, it's initiating. That means it takes charge. It, in, in God's plan of salvation, God provided the perfect solution from eternity past in order to restore the relationship with man that was broken by Adam's original sin. God's initiating love took place billions of billions of years ago in eternity past when we were still obnoxious sinners in God's mind. There's nothing positive in us. Second, his love at the cross is aggressive. It's aggressive. He took charge of the situation, made a plan, worked the plan, and asserted itself with confidence and boldness. Third, it is it was a love that is humble, doesn't seek its own personal glory. Jesus Christ gave up his rights to have that glory as demonstrated on the Mount of Transfiguration, to be all that he was as God in heaven, and to take on the form of a servant to do everything that was necessary to bring about salvation and provide salvation for fallen humanity. Fourth, it's intense. There, there, there's a passion to it, and I don't mean that in a, in a necessarily emotional sense, but in the sense that there's a zealous determination to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. There's a little-known passage in Luke where Jesus, as they're leaving the upper room, and they're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to Peter to make sure that Peter has a, uh, turns to the disciples to make sure they have a couple of swords with them. Why? Because Jesus didn't want to be taken and perhaps murdered or assassinated along the way. He had to get to the cross. And so he made sure they had weapons with them to so that he could be protected to make sure he got where he needed to get in order to accomplish his purpose. So there's a clearly a zealous determination there. Fifth, there's steadfast loyalty. God is loyal to his promises to man despite all of man's disobedience and despite all of man's sinfulness. Sixth, it's consecrated. We are set apart to a task. Jesus Christ was solemnly set apart for the high purpose of being the exclusive means of salvation for the church. Seventh word that we use is dedication. Jesus was dedicated to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. And then eighth, the word is devoted. And that meant that he gave or applied himself entirely to a particular activity. In this case, in his case, the activity was the incarnation and crucifixion for the salvation of the world. Now, these are characteristics of, of salvation. I mean, characteristics of love as seen in salvation. And so we have to factor those in to our concept of what it means to love. For a definition, if you wanted just a one-shot definition, love always seeks the best for its object. But notice I say love seeks the best for its object. Now, a word like the best is a, is a superlative. That implies comparison. That involves an evaluation judgment. That means that you have to be able to determine 
what actually is the best. Now, if you're an immature believer operating on a human viewpoint, you don't have a clue what's best for somebody else. You're going to sit back in some kind of self-righteous arrogance, and what you define as best for somebody else is just really what's best for you, no matter how you cloak and disguise it to justify your own uh, self-centeredness. So you can't get to to a position of actually knowing objectively what's best for other people if you don't have doctrine in your soul so that you have an objective frame of reference, an objective standard to use to determine what is best. So love then comes only as a result of spiritual growth and only as a result of having doctrine in the soul and only as a result of having a standard, an objective and absolute standard which is demonstrated at the cross. Now we come to verse 11. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, his point is, he calls them beloved. That emphasizes the fact that they are objects of God's love. He says, If God so loved us, and the verb that he uses there is the present active indicative of the, the Greek verb othello. It means obligation. If God loved us, if God loved us in the way I've described, we have an obligation to love one another in that same way. It's not an option as far as God's concerned. Now, you do have the option. You can be disobedient. You can you can not love someone. You can say, well, I'm too concerned about uh, what I'm going to get or my situation or my life or whatever it is. And I'm not, I just can't, I just can't do that. But there is an obligation. There's an obligation for the believer to grow because it's part of the family responsibility. Those of you who are in families, most of you are in a family, either, uh, as a, as a child, a son, a daughter, an adult son or daughter, or as a parent, you know that when you were born into a family, that as you grow and mature, if it's a decent family, you're given responsibilities. You have chores to do. You have certain obligations as part of that family. When you get older and your parents get older and your parents are in their senior years and they're in their 70s or 80s and not maybe not doing well, who knows, maybe they have uh, Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's or some other disease, uh, whatever it might be, there is an obligation upon the children to take care of their parents. Unfortunately, there's too many people who don't accept that obligation. See, with an obligation, you do have the option to be irresponsible and not fulfill the obligation, as there are going to be negative consequences. That's exactly what happens in the believer's life. If we do not love one another, if we do not accept the responsibility and the obligation, then the consequence is going to be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, that's the standard. And the word that he used in this phraseology here, God so loved us, is almost identical to that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And the word translated so is the Greek verb, or the Greek demonstrative adverb, hutos, which is used to emphasize degree, extent, to such a degree or in such a manner. And so the point of verse 11 is, Beloved, if God loved us in such a manner, in such a way, we also ought to love one another in the same way. Therefore, we need to focus on the cross, understanding what love is. That is the model. That is the standard that we are expected to step up. Now, we can't do it on our own. 
You can't produce that kind of love on your own. You can't generate it. It can only come by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, emphasizing the same thing, illustrating how to love one another, which he uh, mentions in Galatians 5.14, the next thing he mentions is to walk by the Spirit. And then following that, he says, the Spirit produces certain fruit, and the first fruit is love. It can only be produced as a result of growth. Growth comes by studying the Word, knowing His commandments, and applying His commandments. That's the that's the mechanic. Well, next time we'll get into verse 12. And in verse 12, we begin to get to the core of John's concluding section here, where he talks about love being brought to completion. And in that, we will begin to study the mechanics of just how love is going to be uh, developed in the spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you that you have given us everything we need in order to know how to live the spiritual life. We thank you for the fact that you loved us based on who and what you you are, not on the basis of who and what we are. That as a result of your love, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. In that, we see what real love is. We're not to be confused by the things that we witness on a day-to-day basis in our common experience. Father, we thank you that we have this model of salvation and that it is based on who you are, not who we are, and what Christ did and not what we do. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.